0: Live from GPB Radio, this is Two Way Street. I'm Bill Nigat. Today, my conversation with Deneen Milner, the best-selling author, blogger, and television personality. Her blog, My Brown Baby, has become one of the most popular resources for black mothers because it's devoted to helping them navigate the tricky waters of raising a black child today. But she says raising her own children gave her a new sense of self as an African-American woman living in a world often defined by white standards of beauty
1: daughters really changed my perspective on the way that i look at myself because there was no way that i could look at their faces Mm. and consider my face ugly Mm. or look at their bodies and consider something wrong with mine right
0: i'll talk with Denise nolner about all of that plus her acclaimed books for children her career in journalism and much more after the news Brown Baby That is the great Oscar Brown Jr. singing one of the most beautiful songs in his repertory, Brown Baby. And of course, Deneen Milner, I thought of that song when I was thinking about having you on uh, because one of the things that has put you in the spotlight is your remarkable website, My Brown Baby. Do you know that? You know that song. I know that
1: song. It's a beautiful song. And, the you know, I love music not just because of the, the melody or the actual song, but the words. And that one is, um, you know, it just strikes you to the heart because it... It's everything that I think of when I think of brown children is that I want you to stand tall and jump at the sun.
0: I would think that's exactly right. Oscar Brown Jr. was a was Chicago based artist, uh, singer songwriter. Um, Just, you know, for people out there who may not know his work, go listen to him. Go listen to him on Spotify, on Pandora, wherever you listen. Absolutely. He's worth listening to. So that's our way of saying hello to you, uh, Deneen Milner. I'm so glad you are here for Two Way Street today.
1: I'm so happy to be here, and I thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, we should say this is one of the few live shows uh, that we're doing. Um, We don't don't often do—I think people kind of realize that if they listen to the show— Two-Way Street is most often uh, recorded in advance. It's heavily produced. But we wanted you here live to talk with us. And one of the things that allows us to do, and I think it's um, sad but appropriate, is to talk about the news we all received this morning that Aretha Franklin died. there are many themes that we can talk about in a minute in which you and Aretha Franklin overlap. But what were your initial thoughts? You you talked, you said, to your 19-year-old daughter about Aretha's career uh, when the news came in. Tell us a little Absolutely.
1: about that. Absolutely. So I spent all morning long listening, obviously, to Aretha Franklin. Um, been listening to her off and on over the last week when they started saying that she was gravely ill But today I just played her all of my favorites Rock Steady, Think, Respect, obviously, Uh, A Rose Is Still a Rose, which was produced and written by Lauren Hill, who is uh, on my mind lately because of Joan Morgan's book, She Begat This.
0: Yeah, and also I think we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of The Miseducation of Lorraine that great Absolutely. album of hers.
1: Absolutely. And so, um, you know, Aretha, what I was explaining to my 19-year-old is that Aretha just sort of spanned, um, you know, space and time. Her voice was just unmatched unparalleled it's early her voice is early Sunday morning that's what you hear when you're sitting in the front pew in the church (laughs) and you know the 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 auntie or the deaconess on the piano um, gets in the spirit and just starts playing, and there's nothing that you can do to get in the middle of that. She's just going to take us all home. We're going to fly away home with her. That was Aretha.
0: One of the obituaries that I read um, late this morning um, pointed out something, and I, Frank, I'm sorry, I don't remember in which newspaper I read it. Uh, oh, it was in the Atlanta Constitution, actually. Um, and the, the writer, Jill, Jill was the, we had the byline, and she said something interesting. She said, most presidents, at most, get two inaugurations to be uh, to participate in. Aretha Franklin had three. She sang at uh, uh, Barack Obama's inauguration, where she wore that spectacular hat. That big old hat. hat.
1: <laughs> Aretha's hat. <Yeah>. Right.
0: <laughs> um, she sang at uh, the inauguration of Bill Clinton, at the pre-inaugural concert. She did a two-hour concert the night before, the day before he was sworn in. But... Uh, Apropos of all of us here in Georgia, she also performed in a concert on the night before Jimmy Carter was sworn in as president. She sang several songs at a, at a concert at the Kennedy Center. Why don't we just listen to a little bit of her singing God Bless America. God bless
1: America. Land that I love, stand beside her and guide her
0: through the
1: night,
0: from the light, from above. That was the moment at that concert that people said was uh, the the exceptional moment of the concert. Um, But you know what's interesting about that? She also rocked the house with a couple of her other numbers. I watched them this morning again on um, YouTube. Uh, Here she was singing in front of that incredible crowd. And I don't think I saw a black face in that entire auditorium. I'm sure there were African-Americans there. Jimmy Carter, uh, by that point in his life, was a more inclusive guy, so it's not up to him. Uh, it wasn't because of him that there weren't men. Ma- but here she is singing God Bless America, riveting the crowd, and it's a, pretty much a white crowd. Does that strike you?
1: You know what What I Think of when I hear her singing that particular song, God bless America, land that I love, stand beside her and guide her. Um, you know, that was only nine years. That was in 77, right? So that was only nine years after Martin Luther King was killed. I was nine years old. I was born in October of '98. Um, 68. I'm sorry. And to hear her sing that song is... It doesn't feel like a celebration. It sounds like a clarion call, right? It sounds like, listen, I have high expectations for you. We've just come through the storm of civil rights movement, and we're still sort of feeling the reverberations of the earthquake that had to move this country in its way, in the way that it did in order for us to try to get along and try to put what we the, the the differences that we had for people of color aside so that we could move forward as a country. Mm-hmm. And to hear her sing that song makes me feel like She's saying, listen, this belongs to all of us. This is our this is my country, too. You may not see black faces in this crowd, but I'm going to let you know the way that I'm delivering this song again, like early Sunday morning. I'm going to let you know that this is my country, too. That's my president. This is my country. And we have high expectations for all of you. Oh, okay,
0: interesting. I, I said that there are themes uh, that unite you and Aretha Franklin. You've written 23, 24 books 27. Now? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I can't keep up with you. All right. And, and, and among the many books you've written are a number of titles which really do call out to African-American women and say, take, seize your power. Um, the warrior code, right? Mm -hmm. 11 principles to unleash the badass inside of you. (laughs) What are some of the other titles that uh, have, you know, again, our efforts to say to women, be empowered, African-American women?
1: Sure. So um, right off the top of my head, I can tell you that I wrote the novelization for Sparkle. Um, And of course, one of the songs in that Uh, that rang true in that movie was giving him something he can feel, which was one of Aretha's, you know,
0: most popular songs. Remind us about Sparkle.
1: Sparkle was about a girl group, three sisters who wanted very, very badly to be a, a, a famous girl group, basically. Um, And they the one sister is a songwriter. One is the singer and the lead, and going through some things because she um, faces off against colorism, and uh, as opposed to her younger sister, who's dark skinned and you know catches all kinds of you know what for being dark skinned and she gets into drugs. And it's about sort of this the life of three these three women trying to find glory. Um, without losing themselves. And, you know, isn't that a, a, an everyday thing that we all go through yeah. as women? How do we find glory in ourselves without losing
0: You also wrote the novelization for the, uh, initially the Broadway musical and then the movie Dream, Dream Girls. Girls, right? Yeah, I which, which also is about a woman singing group, African American soul group, kind of Motown era. And about the ways in which they're taken advantage of, the way in which they try to break through, empower themselves. I have to tell you, uh, Deneen, I, I, had a, I went to the box office at the, whatever the Broadway theater was that played at. And I said, do you have anything left? And they had like one seat in the last row of the balcony. And I got to see Jennifer Holliday in the original production of Dream Girl sing that unbelievable
1: You're so song. lucky.
0: and I'm telling you I'm not going. What, but what was it like to write a book based on such an extraordinarily popular movie?
1: So I had exactly two weeks to write that book. I was on vacation in, I believe it was either Savannah or Hilton Head, it was Hilton Head because I was sitting on the beach. And um, I got a phone call from one of my longtime editors saying, hey, we're looking for someone to write the novelization for Dream Girls. Are you interested? And I said, well, yeah, of course. And I'm telling you, I'm not going, of course.
0: <laughs> and so she says, OK, I'm
1: going to FedEx this to you to the beach because we need it in two weeks. And so I started conceiving the story. So a novelization is um, you take the screenplay and whatever the color is uh, that's missing um, in between the scenes, in between the lines, I get to paint it as, you know, use my my intelligence and my creativity and my imagination to come up with backstories for what actually happens on what transpires on film. And so I sat on the beach and uh, just with a notebook and a pen and came up with ideas after I read through the screenplay, uh, did a bunch of research on the Motown era, Detroit, um, and the Supremes, of course, and then sat and wrote that book over the course. Literally in two weeks, I wrote and edited that book.
0: So, again, the breakout song was Jennifer Holiday in the original Broadway. I think she was 19 years old. She, she like Aretha Franklin, came out of the church sure. in, in Texas, sang gospel, and somehow came to the attention of the producers of that show and found herself on Broadway at 19 years old. And, again, that song, and I'm telling you, I'm not going. Yes, I
1: can't sing, <laughs> it, but whoop, I yes. can't either, obviously.
0: <laughs> so it became a, an anthem. How do you— did you tr- how do you treat that in the book? Do you take the lyrics from that and find a way to tell that story? Yes, that's
1: exactly it. so um in in the movie and on in the play, um Jennifer uh, the uh, Effie, White, yes. is um, she's in a in a, a relationship with the manager, and the manager is trying to replace her with Dina, uh, who just has sort of this look about her. Again, there's colorism there. There's sort of um, weight uh, issues there. Dina comes across as more attractive and I say that with air quotes and so they want to push her in up front and this is the man that she's with this is the man whose baby she's about to have and uh he is pushing her aside for someone that he deems to be prettier and skinnier and even though she's nowhere near as talented um vocally as Effie and so She's just gone through all of these different changes, and she stands up on that stage, and she says, "You're not going to dismiss me. You're not just going to push me to the side. I am going to stand here, and I'm going to stand on this pedestal, and I'm going to use what God gave me, my sword." That. I've used to cut so many people, which is my voice, and I'm going to tell you, you're not going to push me aside.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so that's what the story was was like for me. Building well, you up just around fleshed that. out,
0: and you just did flesh out in a very different way than we see it unfold, either sure. in the film or in the TV show. Right, that which was so much fun. I'll bet that it was is. the fun part. <laughs> you know, you your your career, so you know. I realized that uh, any for any talk show host who uh, really is looking, is worried, I need the guests that I uh, can fill an entire show with me, please book uh, Deneen Milner, because we have so many things about your life and career we could talk about, and we're not going to get to all of them. But, but I do want to talk a little bit about some of the interesting... You, you've written... You, you were also a reporter in your sure. first... In your first career as a writer at the New York Daily News, I was at
1: the the Associated Press and then the Daily News. I started out at the Associated Press in upstate New York and Albany, working the overnight shift, uh, covering whatever happened literally in the middle of the night and writing copy for television and radio based off of what was in the newspapers or what the AP covered. And then uh, my boss, Mike Hendricks, I'll never forget, there was an opening that came up in the political uh, reporter's house, uh, and he asked me if I would be interested in being a political reporter. I was 22. Wow! And I had never thought of myself as a political reporter, but when Mike said, "Spread your wings and fly," that's what I did.
0: So, what era was that? Like, what what were some of the political stories you were covered? Was it local po- so uh, New York was, politics? In it those was. Days?
1: It was local. It was state. Wide politics. Okay. So I was covering uh, Governor Cuomo and then uh, George Pataki. And so some of the big issues, one of the big issues was Anita Hill. And Anita Hill was actually and, and the whole uh, um, a sexual harassment at the workplace, yeah. which is you know the obviously the precursor to me too, yeah. uh, was roiling the state house because I broke a story while I was there about how there were several state senators, women, and state assembly women who had been sexually harassed by their colleagues on the congressional floor, on the state house floor. And so um, no, uh, these women kind of spoke out, but they wouldn't say who it was that did it. And I managed to figure out who did it uh, and broke the story. It got followed by all of the largest newspapers in uh, New York. And that got me my first phone call from the Daily News asking me if I wanted to work for them. Wow. And I turned them down three times before I said yes. Cause, Why? Because I was a baby. Oh, okay. <laughs> what do I know? You know, like I was pretty good at my job, clearly. But I, w- I, didn't, I wasn't sure that I was ready to go and work for what was then the sixth largest newspaper in the country. And so the third time that they asked, they brought me down to New York. And this was over the course of a year they asked me. And they brought me down to New York and Mort Zuckerman, who uh, owned the paper at the time, uh, put me into his limousine and drove me throughout New York. And and just talked me into you know sweet talked me in his limousine into coming wow. to wow. the Daily News. Wow!
0: All right, <laughs> let's do this. Um, my guest is Deneen Milner. We've got to get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about a couple of books you've written, uh, especially the books you've written with some of the best known celebrities uh, in the country. We'll do that and have more on Two Way Street after this. Hey, this is David Green, host of Morning Edition. I'm here to talk with you about that poking feeling, the one that keeps reminding you to support public radio. You can support the programs you love by donating your used vehicle. That old car or truck could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station. All you have to do is call, and you might even receive a tax deduction. Go to gpb.org cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR and thanks. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has been a
1: hardliner on immigration for years. An idea he returns to repeatedly is the number of people who are
0: foreign-born. Indeed, we will soon reach the highest level of non-native-born Americans in our nation's history. How that idea and Sessions
1: have shaped the Trump administration's immigration policy this afternoon on All Things Considered from
0: NPR News. 4 till 7 on GPB. We're back on uh, Two Way Street with Janine Milner, uh, who started her career in New York City. I think you started in New York City in your career, uh, but now makes her home here in Atlanta. How did you end up in Atlanta?
1: Uh, I was an editor for Parenting Magazine and was spending an incredible amount of time sitting in my car trying to get home to my daughters at night. And what I found was that I would usually show up sometime after the nanny had given them baths and was about to tuck them in to sleep at night. And I just hated that. I hated it. I hated showing up, having popcorn for dinner or eating leftover chicken nuggets and rocking my babies to sleep and not spending time with them outside of the weekends. Um, And then I I had a scare with prediabetes. diabetes And my doctor told me that I needed to calm down. I needed to stop stressing so much. And the way that I decided to do that was to leave the hustle and bustle and crazy of New York City, to move to a place where I could afford to live the way that I wanted to live and make the life that I wanted to make for my daughters without spending every last dime in my pocket, which was what was going on up north. Um, and be able to raise my daughters the way that I wanted to raise your them. Your
0: whole life, you, I mean, not just your own daughters, although clearly they are your first priority, but you have turned your career toward looking at, first, I think it's fair to say, the challenges that black mothers have uh, in in raising uh, children in a in a in a world that isn't always kind to them. Um, and and uh, also, to publishing books that are for young children, and I want to talk about all of that. Before we do, though, I said mm-hmm. at the break, "You've is it go? Were you the ghostwriter or were you the credited author? You wrote, for instance, a book with uh, Taraji uh, Henson." Taraji
1: Henson, yes, I'm. I'm the co-author. I've only ghost-written one book, and that was a children's book that. It has to be, you know, unnamed because I was the ghostwriter. But all of the others, I wrote Taraji P Henson's book, Around the Way Girl. Charlie Wilson from the Gap Band, I wrote his book, I Am Charlie Wilson. Uh, let's see, Jesse Norman, who is a daughter of
0: Augusta of Augusta, yeah. yes,
1: Augusta, Georgia. I wrote her book, Stand Up Straight and Sing. Um, you know, it's it's so NeNe Leakes, who also is a daughter of Georgia from yeah. Athens. Uh, and these books just um, just help me shine a light on what's interesting to me outside of sort of that public persona. What contributed to this person being the human that they are, not necessarily the star. All right. What did you learn are.
0: about Jesse Norman in that respect?
1: Oh my goodness, Jesse Norman. Is was born and raised in Augusta, Georgia, during the the uh, during segregation, and came from a family that believed deeply in letting their children soar and creating every opportunity for them to do so, despite what was going on in America when it came to Jim Crow and her being in the South. And I identified with her story because it was very much like the story of my own father and how he grew up in uh, rural Virginia Mm -hmm. and during segregation. He was born in 1935 and what that meant for him, how that limited him, but also all the different ways that he went about not thinking about racism and what he could and could not do but just living his life. And so I think that Jesse and I were able to bond over the the notion that I knew her story because I'm the daughter. It's your story. It's, It's my dad's story. It's my story for sure.
0: Taraji Henson Taraji Henson is what's her what is she now best known for these days
1: so she is uh, the she is the star yeah. one of the stars of Empire, Empire on uh, Fox. Fox okay right and okay. um you know and has a bunch of different movies yeah. and um, she earned an Oscar nomination for her role in hidden the,
0: figures and
1: uh, in, uh, in, in right? hidden figures yeah, the... and also in um oh goodness in the uh, Benjamin Button so she played the mother of uh, the adoptive mother of Benjamin Button. And she found Benjamin Button on a stoop
0: and <laughs> became his mother.
1: Uh, and Taraji is just really interesting because she comes from a single parent household in a hard scrabble community in Washington, D.C. And that girl is determined. Everything about what she does is about. I see this brick wall, and I know that you told me that I'm not supposed to be able to run through this brick wall. But guess what? I'm about to run (laughs) through this brick wall. If I can't scale it, go around it, you know, uh, I'm going to run straight through it. And she's inspiring in that way, not just to me, but to her fans, because she is just a very real person. I know people say real and it almost sounds like a cliché. But Taraji and I would be on the phone talking for three and four hours at a time while we were writing her book. And we would be cackling like the best of friends one minute and crying like babies the next, talking about her life and her journey and what it took for her to make it to where she is. She's just an amazing woman. And the way that we wrote her book wasn't sort of like a a typical memoir. It wasn't like a, I was born a poor black child and then I became, you know, the star, A, B, formulate through C, Z. Um, she wanted to do it in a way where she told uh, essays. She wrote essays that sort of said something about her life. And what she came through. And so the book is told in chronological order, but it's also told in um, sort of characteristics of who Taraji is. So I am truthful. Uh, I am uh, the mother of a black child and a black son in America. I am a black woman in Hollywood. And each one of those different characteristics of Taraji Henson speaks to where we are in society and how what she's gone through in her life, not just as a star, but as Taraji Henson, the woman, how that sort of plays in society and how society moves in relation to black women.
0: And the title of that book again is...
1: It's called Around the Way Girl, yeah. like L.L. Cool J's yeah. song, yeah. Around the Way Girl. Yeah.
0: So I said a minute ago that um, you've uh, spent a lot of time on your blog uh, and, and in other uh, venues talking about the challenges of being an African American mother today. We know some of the cliches, which are true. They're cliches because they're true and oft-repeated. I mean, a black mother uh, has to especially uh, uh, tell sons how to behave uh, in, in the face of police officers, yeah. for instance, um, and in other contexts as well. Uh, we understand that. We that, So there are some cliches that happen to be true. But what don't we understand about the challenges that you have as an African-American mom and what you have to tell your children?
1: Sure, that um, they were made in love, that they are... Incredible. No matter what anybody look uh, says about them or what they think when they look at them, that they have the right to be, that they are full human beings with the right to express to the expression of every emotion that they can access. Um, this is something that we don't often get to um, get to be as Black people in America. I can walk down the street and I, and, or walk into a store or walk into a building and have people make all kinds of assumptions about me because of the color of my skin. But that is not the beginning and end of me. It's not even a scratch of who I am. Um, And this is something that I wanted to make sure that I convey not only to my children, but to the mothers who follow my brown baby and are raising brown children. 25% of my audience is white women raising brown children. Really? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And looking for, um, having their eyes opened for the very first time about what it means to walk in the shoes of a brown person. They are charged with loving and caring for brown children, and there are things that they just never had to understand because they never had to deal with it. No. And so they come to My Brown Baby to commiserate, to learn, to educate themselves, to educate others. Um, but the, the My Brown Baby isn't just about dealing with problems. It's about being able to um, come and just sort of sit and feel like you're welcome that you're not just being talked to on uh february uh, around february around black history month like we exist outside of black history month what was it it was chris rock who said there's no black history month check that comes for me in (laughs) february right (laughs) i looked in the mailbox it wasn't there Um, (laughs) it's because we exist outside of black history month
0: yeah um and you've also uh Found a way to communicate more about how young black children uh, view the world. I mean, not only have you yourself written a number of books children's books you your daughter mari is that how mari mari, yes. mari uh, you you she wrote uh, for my brown baby twenty five things you don't know about <laughs> Deneen Milner, and uh, one of them was that you love children's books, and one of your favorites is Tar Beach. I remember reading Tar Beach to my daughter, Emma it wasn't around when my son was a uh, little. And we love that book, too.
1: Oh, my goodness. Tar Beach by Faith Ringgold. Yeah. I, to this day, I pick it up at least a couple of times a month. Tell our listeners
0: what that refers to. Uh, sure. It's so really tar, So
1: from New York, New York in the house, um, uh, Tar Beach is the top of rooftops yeah. in New York are usually covered over with tar. I'm um, not sure why, but. If you have access to your rooftop, you could go upstairs and lay on top of that tar and sun tan. And so it's called Tar Beach. Uh, You got me to lay out on it. uh,
0: And it's a chilling image uh, because I I can understand if you've done that as a little kid, there (laughs) might be some romantic (laughs) memories, but it's also sad.
1: I, I guess of course you know, it we don't is. have a whole lot of access to beaches <laughs> well, that's my point right Jones Beach isn't the best beach to go and hang out at but um but it's you know it's 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 a piece of of you it's a piece of New York you, know, you get up on the top of that roof and you see everything that belongs to you and that's what Cassie Mae Lightfoot does in Tar Beach All right,
0: so y- you love that book uh-huh. but you now have your own children's imprint and have published did you say you have like six, seven book, I've, books? I've
1: published five books on Danine Milner Books, which is an imprint on the Bolden, uh, uh, the Bolden imprint of Agate, Agate? Publishing, based uh-huh. out of Chicago. And uh, we have two more that I'm working on right now. I just got the covers, and they are gorgeous. And you
0: My have goodness. been, you've been, your books are winning. Awards and honors left and right.
1: I am I am so pleased with um, what is what transpired in our debut year. One of the books, uh, Crown, is the Crown of Denine Milner books. Uh, it is a winner or, or an honoree, a Caldecott honoree, a Newbery Award honoree. A, an honoree for both illustration and uh, writing for Coretta Scott King. It won an Ezra Jack Keats Award for writing, an honor for Ezra Jack Keats for illustration, and a Society of uh, Society of Illustrators Gold Medal it's, for illustrations.
0: I read it. Um, in fact, I have it. I downloaded it to my iPad. It's about a, a, a young boy who goes to the barber shop. Makes Absolutely. his trip to the bar. Do you mind if I read a little of it to you? Go for it. I the, love um, it. As the boy comes in, uh, here and the, the illustrations are just wonderful. You came in as a lump of clay, a, black, a blank canvas, a slab of marble. But when my man is done with you, they'll want to post you up in a museum. That's my word. He'll drape you like royalty with that cape to keep the fine hairs off of your neck and your princely robes. It's amazing what a tight fade, high, low bald does for your confidence Dark Caesar. Yes. Wow. Yes. That's fabulous. And
1: that book was sitting on Derek Barnes's computer, completely unpublished. When I started uh, Deneen Milner Books with my partner, Doug Seibold, I went and I asked all of my writer friends, hey, we all have something that's sitting on our computer that no one would buy or that we never showed to anyone or that we, you know, just never got in front of the eyes of an editor. What do you have? And Derek handed me crown.
0: It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It is
1: absolutely a stunning story.
0: By the way, uh, one of the other things Mari said in the 25 things you don't know about uh, Deneen Milner, my mom, is that she loves uh, Almond Joys and Hershey's with almonds. So there's an Almond Joy and some Hershey's with... I brought those in for you. Um... uh, can we change, can we go to a completely different, in a completely different direction of for course. a few minutes? Because it all re- relates back to the conversation um, that is a big part of who you are, and that's what it means to be African American today, in America today. Sure. So I said, What's a movie that you really love these days? And you said,
1: Black Klansman. I, you
0: know, the Spike Lee picture. I saw Black Klansman last weekend with my wife, and we came out of the theater just unable to speak.
1: I applauded. So I was the, if anybody was at, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, the movie theater that we went to see it at, uh, the one that starts with a P, Phipps Plaza. We were at Phipps Plaza. If you, on Monday, and if you were in the two o'clock showing with a nut that stood up and applauded, that was me. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, Excuse me. So, Black Klansman, of course, is the story of uh, uh, Ron Stallworth, who worked. He was the first black police officer in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and he infiltrated a chapter of the KKK in that part of southern Colorado. And he ended up working with a white officer. Uh, Stallworth would talk to the Klan on the telephone. And then the white officer would actually play him (laughs) in meetings where he had to come forward. Let's listen to just a couple minutes. This is a scene uh, between uh, Stallworth, played by John David Washington, Denzel Washington's son. Denzel
1: Washington's baby.
0: And his white partner, played by Adam Driver. You're going to hear uh, John David Washington start. This is the job. What's your problem? That's my problem. For you, it's a crusade. For me, it's a job. It's not personal, nor should it be. Why haven't you bought into this? Why should I? Because you're Jewish, brother. The so-called chosen people. You've been passing for a wasp. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant, cherry pie hot dog white boy. Hmm. That's what some light-skinned black folks do. They pass for white. Doesn't that hatred you've been hearing the clan say, doesn't that piss you off? Of course it does. Then why you acting like you ain't got skin in the game, brother? Rookie, that's my f- in business. It's our business. I'm going to get you your membership card so you can go to the cross burning and get in deeper with these guys. That's a scene from Black Klansman, Spike Lee's new picture. Um, It's a powerful scene. Absolutely. And if
1: that man does not sound like his daddy, I don't know who does.
0: (laughs) Good grief. Yeah. The membership card they're talking about is a national uh, membership card to the KKK, which Ron Mm -hmm. Stallworth has to this day, Mm -hmm. his actual card. Um, What did that picture do for you? Why did you stand up and cheer at the end of it?
1: I just, it moved me to be able to sit and sort of relate what happened with Ron Stallworth infiltrating the KKK and the most powerful part at the end where we get to see what happened just in 2017 in Virginia, in Charlottesville, and how... Even though what happened with him infiltrating the KKK in the 70s happened in the 70s, we are still living this reality to this day.
0: It's one of the powerful things about the picture, without giving too much of it away, if that's all right with you, Mm -hmm. is that um, we finally understand where Spike Lee has been taking us the entire time.
1: Listen, I am probably one of Spike's biggest fans. I used to cover him when I was an entertainment reporter at the Daily News. That was after I finished being a political reporter. And I would sit with him for hours um, in his his storefront. He had a storefront in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, right around the corner from where I lived, across from Fort Fort Greene Park. And I just found him fascinating because he's always been just sort of this independent spirit who is just unflinchingly, um, you know, loud about his beliefs and where he stands on things? He is black and white. But you he- know,
0: here's what's interesting. Here's how, I have only one experience with Spike Lee. My my wife, uh, Janice Schaefer, was uh, one of the screenwriters on a picture that his wife, Tanya Lewis Lee. Uh, produced um, with uh, uh, her producing partner Nikki Silver, and uh, it opened, it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, and at, so I saw Spike out there over the couple days that we were out there celebrating the release at, or the the premiere at Sundance, and I found him to be incredibly quiet and self-contained. Um, I didn't know how to talk to him. Yeah. I didn't know. Uh, so it's interesting that he's an artist who seems to be biggest, when he's creating. Right. Fair enough? Right,
1: That's fair, but he can be, Spike can be very talkative. Okay. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just, it was me. It was,
1: no, I don't know if it was you. He just, <laughs> there are they're they're things that he's really passionate about, yeah. and if you don't know how to tap into that, he's not going to give anything to
0: you. Alright, here's what I want to do. we got to get to a break, but let's do one more thing before we do. So you said you had a conversation. One of the things that's interesting about the picture is Ron Stallworth on the telephone to the clant including his conversations he actually got was talking with david duke was how come they didn't recognize that he was a black man based on his voice and you said that came up in a conversation at your house
1: it came up in a conversation with my daughter because she got up bothered that he couldn't code switch better she felt like john uh john washington didn't do a good job of code switching and showing when he was black and when he was white, of course, that was a part of the the whole ruse was for him to sound like a white man on the phone. But she found that when he was with in some scenes with the Black Panther Party, that he didn't sound any different than he did when he was a white man on the phone. And that bothered her because she is a black woman in America, a young black woman in America who goes to Yale. And she says that she's constantly being um, kind of harassed about that.
0: All right. Then I have a surprise for you. Okay. I think one of the wackiest and most inventive and extraordinary pictures that I've seen in the last year is a picture by the director Boots Riley, who's been a big part of the hip hop scene. He has a picture that's in the theaters right now. It's called Sorry to Bother You, oh,
1: gosh. stars yes, Lakeith absolutely. Stanfield, who's an amazing. <laughs> absolutely. OK,
0: so in that picture, <laughs> Lakeith plays a guy who comes to work at a telemarketing company where he's trying to sell it's like encyclopedias over the phone. Right. Uh, Uh, Morgan Freeman I'm sorry, Danny Glover sits next to him He's the old grizzled veteran Lakeith is just the young new uh, rookie at this and he can't sell a thing and finally Danny Glover leans over from his cubicle to and this is what he says Hey young blood let me give you a tip Use your white voice Man, I ain't got no white voice Oh, come on, you know what I mean You have a white voice in there you can use it you want to make some money here then read the script with a white voice when people say I talk with a white voice anyway so why ain't it helping me out well you don't talk white enough I'm not, I'm not talking about Will Smith wife I'm talking about the real deal like this young blood
1: hey Mr. Kramer this is Langston from View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time did I?
0: And that one white voice is supposed to be Danny right. Glover. Can I, can I tell you, that
1: was the best movie ever? Oh my goodness. It's phenomenal. I had such a yeah. great time with that movie and digging into what it means. But it
0: sure makes a point, doesn't Absolutely. it?
1: Absolutely. And of course,
0: as soon as he uses the white voice, LaKeith, he becomes one of the great stars of this company Absolutely. and keeps moving up the ladder. Absolutely. What does that and, say to you?
1: Uh, it's familiar. It says exactly what I've dealt with my entire lifetime and that my daughter is dealing with right now. The ability to code switch, to be in a room and to have people look at you in a very particular way based off of the way that you are communicating with them, with your body language, with your voice, with uh, the words that you choose to use when you're communicating says a lot about what other people think about you. In those moments.
0: All right, we've got to get another break out of the way. When we come back, I want to talk about your journey with the remaining time that we have, because it's a fascinating one. Uh, so let's get another break in on Two Way Street. And let me thank, by the way, Tyler uh, Morris and Robert Jimison, because the music you hear during our breaks today all comes from the original score of Black Klansman.
1: GPB is now offering your organization the opportunity to partner with us as a corporate sponsor. You'll reach a highly desirable, engaged public radio audience, an audience that is more likely to support your organization because you support GPB. In addition to increasing awareness for your business, you'll help GPB continue to serve our community with high-quality news and information. To learn more, go to
0: SponsorGPB.org.
1: On the next Fresh Air, we remember Aretha Franklin. She's died at the age of 76. We'll listen back to the interview we recorded in 1999. She told the stories behind some of her songs. Join us.
0: Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB. You know, it's interesting. I said that the music that they selected is from Black Klansman and even Dixie because uh, Spike Lee uses that. The first shot we see is that famous shot from Gone with the Wind at the railway terminal with all the Confederate soldiers there. And Spike Lee clearly uses it with a great sense of irony.
1: He always has the most amazing. uh, If you sit and you just sort of listen to the soundtracks, and the scores for um, his movies, he's always so very thoughtful the way that he uses them.
0: Um, there are so many things we are not going to get to today. Uh, so at, in passing, one of the things that brought you to us at GPB and that I'm so happy brought you here is that you are part of the, the three-woman uh, team Uh, That does a seat at the table.
1: Yes. Um,
0: My former colleague at Channel 2 News, uh, Monica uh, Kaufman uh, Pearson, is, of course, one of the hosts of the show. I always feel so here we have you three African-American women. Talking about your lives in ways that are so intimate that I sometimes feel like I should turn away and <laughs> not, I should listen, but I don't wanna look. <laughs> it must be wonderful to do that show.
1: We certainly are open books. Yeah. And and you know what I love about a seat at the table and particularly the producers is that they allow me to just be Fully unapologetically, Danine. And when you let me be Danine, that's when you know we get the magic. Um, I I am an open book. It's I'm a communicator. That's what I do. That's what I've done my entire life. And so, sitting and sort of thinking about my journey and how that relates to others, and sort of opening that those books and opening that chapter and digging down to the why that word is where it is, um, if that can help other people. Understand their place, or in in that same book, then I'm happy to be a part of it.
0: So you talk about your journey. Um, when you were born, you were what we now we used what used to be called a foundling. Your your mother uh, did she give you up? Did she ab- what exactly happened to the best of your understanding?
1: I'm told, and this is from my father, and I, we've only talked about it one time, and that was the day that we buried my mom. I'm told that I was left on a stoop in an orphanage, uh, the stoop of an orphanage in on Canal Street in New York City, and that my parents came along and found me four days later. They were looking; they had already found a son or two sons, um, but one they ended up not keeping. They were fostering two two boys. And my dad said that he wanted to foster a girl. And so they showed up at this orphanage looking for a girl and my mom was upstairs looking and my dad went downstairs to a basement and I was in a crib in the back of the basement in the dark and he peeked over into the crib and said, look at this little chocolate drop. And um, said, that's the one. Oh. And they took me home.
0: How old were you when you finally learned the truth about that?
1: I was 12 years old when I discovered the, my adoption papers, snooping through my parents' things. Um, and I, I wanted to know what was in this metal box that they kept under their bed. Because, you know, journalist, nosy. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I found my adoption papers and um, you know, it blew me away and and. and the, as you can imagine, what a 12-year-old would feel like when they find out that their parents are not their birth parents. But I was too afraid to, to confront my parents because I thought I was going to get in trouble for snooping through yeah. their things. Yeah. Eventually, I came to the conclusion that if they needed it to be a secret, that it was important to them to make everyone, including me, believe that I was their birth child, well, then I would go with it because I'd never known anyone else as my parents.
0: So... You started life in that way. You just wrote a blog not long ago about the fact that you're facing 50. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's astonishing really how much you've accomplished in your life. But facing 50, I mean I'm a lot older than that. Um but it's it hard to believe. Yeah, you know, okay. <laughs> it starts getting daunting. How are you dealing with that, Denine? How's the arithmetic working for you?
1: The math is working just fine for me. Okay. Um, I am i I am in a point in my life where I am finally happy and free. And doing things not because I feel like I have to, but doing them because I want to. You know, I spent my entire lifetime trying to craft the perfect career, trying to have the perfect marriage, trying to be the perfect mom, trying to be the perfect friend, the perfect volunteer, the perfect everything For based on what other people thought would be best for me. And what I'm loving about 49, about to be 50 in October, is that I am finally crafting what Deneen wants for Deneen. I am pursuing my passions. So being on a seat at the table is about pursuing something that I always wanted to do, which was television. And who knew that I would get a television show at age 48, Um, you know, that I get to go into that studio and sit down and talk to two intelligent women, Monica and Christine, and talk about my life and my journey as a black woman in America without anybody stepping on my words, or telling me what I can and cannot say, is absolutely thrilling to me. Um, I, you know, I, I, I hope that I get to do radio. You know, GPB has been so good to me, and opened the door for me to be able to pursue things that I've always wanted to do. And if you would have asked me at twenty-five if I would be. Doing something new at age 50, I would have looked at you like crazy, like um, when you're 50, you're retired and you're sitting in a rocking chair somewhere,
0: right? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm 71 and I'm not ready for the rocking at chair. At all, at I, all. I, I, you know, I'll tell you, I understand that. Um, I've had thirty. I've had 35 years in, in the television news business uh, before coming to GPB and I never thought I'd still be working. Uh, I'm having more fun. In broadcasting today, it's probably the most exciting part of my career. That's a pretty interesting thing.
1: Absolutely. And that's the beauty of... Becoming of age, right? I, I used to, when I was a political reporter in New York City, there was this woman, she was a city councilwoman, uh, y- Yvette Clark was her name, and she used to always walk up to me. I wore, you know, you know, I was young. I was 25, and I was a- at New York City in the seat of politics in New York City, and she would walk up to me, and she would say, mm, mm. mm youth is just wasted on
0: the young (laughs) and I didn't know what she was
1: talking about like why does this lady keep coming up to me in the hallway and saying these things to me now I get it I totally get it I am 50 years old and I didn't know what to do with my looks with my intelligence with my my energy with my verve with my with my words when I was 25 but good lord I know what I'm doing now and There is nothing that you could say or do to me to make me want to turn back. 50 is about to be on and popping.
0: What are the next big projects for you as we finish up?
1: Oh, goodness. So Deneen Milner Books has two beautiful projects coming out in summer of 2019. One is called um, Just Like a Mama, and it's about a little girl who is living with a woman who is not her mother, which, of course, is intimate to me. It's what happens when your birth parents aren't there who are the caregivers and how they are capable of loving you, just as if your blood, their blood runs through your veins. Uh, and the other one is What called, age
0: are we talking about for that, ages is about?
1: The, oh, so this is for um, ages 3 to about 7 or okay, 8. Okay, go ahead. What's yeah. the other one? And the other one is called My Rainy Day Rocket Ship, and it's about a little black boy who... Who is reined in on a summer day and has to come up with something to do after he exhausts all of his toys and he decides to build a rocket ship. And the beauty of those two books is that they celebrate the humanity of black children. Like, find me a little black boy who doesn't sit around thinking about being an astronaut and flying a spaceship to outer space.
0: We have a role model right here who lives right here in Georgia, Ron McNair, yes, African American astronaut who now has absolutely. a school named after him in Decapco. I remember County. where
1: I was when. That astro- when that when that rocket ship um, you know when what happened to yeah. it happened I was yeah in, in elementary school.
0: We are completely out of time. let us I'd like to have another hour, but I think Terry Gross wants to come in and do a fresh air. <laughs> so we'll let her do that. Deneen Milner, it's been a real joy talking to you today. I'm sure the experiences that you are now about to uh, deal with, what you've learned in your life, going to find its way in your blog, my, in seat at the table, whatever radio you do. Uh, we're going to be hearing your voice a lot more. Thanks for joining me, Deneen.
1: Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure.